Welcome to the Net and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. With Natalie winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they have returned from their full-time family adventure in Europe and are now grounding down in Australia where they are focused on all of you. How can your dream become reality this decade, perhaps even this year? Not only do Nat and Sarah bring us their three-step manifestation process complete with downloading worksheets, but also their realities of failed attempts and some of the frustrations that color their path. They believe that this life journey was never intended to be jolt-free, but rather a powerful trip down the raging rapids of life. Each week, the Nat and Sarah Show will navigate the epic lives of their mentors to uncover how they use their own manifestation process to produce dreams that are available to us all. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah Show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop-style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Today, we continue the conversation with Australia's leading business and high-performance strategist. Whoa, how do you get that title? Kerwin Ray has helped 100,000 businesses, because he counts them, in 154, oh no, industries in 11 countries, and he's done this by failing out of school, battling addiction, and almost dying six times. So I think everybody can be successful. So starting his first business at age 23, writing a powerful personal creed for his life in 2001, we are so curious how his life has come to match the prolific words he wrote to himself almost 19 years ago. It's very ominous actually. Nat, Nat really said that to me. She's like, you gotta go listen to that creed. So Nat is especially joining us in today's conversation. Hopefully we won't go into how she's made that happen, but she clearly recalls meeting this 20-year-old and thinking he's a special one. So now we get to get on track to how the contribution from his 20-year-old self matches to right now. So Nat, do you want to say a couple things? Yeah, not only did I think he was a special one, but his mum would tell me every time I went to see his mum because his mum helped my brother, right? So she was a hypnose, hypnotherapist or whatever you want to call it. She, she worked with my brother who had Asperger's and she would say, this is my son, Kerwin. He is awesome. He is going to impact the world. And I'm like, yeah, he looks good. He's, you know, we took a selfie and all those things. And who would have thought, Kerwin, that you would go on to this? She brainwashed me. She brainwashed uh, she, me. She brainwashed me too because I now remember that you are the special one. And so much so, Sarah, you said I wouldn't go into it, but I have to. What I've been through to be here, I wish I had your film crew, Kerwin, to follow me. From sailboats to speedboats to hitchhiking on Hamilton Island on a buggy to running down the street to get to be here with you. You are harder to get. Than Honestly, I think you should reenact it just for the intro. <laughs> just did. 
So, God, we are back to... This is all about you. It's not about us. This is... But normally, the Nat and Sarah show has to have Nat and Sarah, although Sarah's been taking the lead because she's all about consistency and commitment. And I flick in and out. I, don't, I, I would love... I don't know. It'll get to that question. But, Co and Ray... Yeah. High five to you from you, 25 years ago. You are the man. Let's. Oh, and, and look, and the quick recap. You know, I first met you when I was, I was 23. Uh, no, I was 20. Actually, it was before my first business, 22, 21. And you were doing a, um, uh, a signing, a ball signing, if I can say that, um, at Garden City Sports Power. And um, we played volleyball for a couple of days in school holidays. And yeah, who would have thought 20 years later? Wow. Gold. Okay, you too. I love synergy because I said to Nat, listening to Kerwin speak to a child psychiatrist, I thought, who is this guy? I love what he has to say about parenting. I feel like he's as pumped about his four-year-old as we are about ours. Oh, like, so look, I'm going to be honest. There's like a hundred veins we could go in. Yep. Far away. Um, And so let's just start here and see what happens. So you came from a broken home. Nat mentioned your mom. There was only so much hypnosis she could do. But like what was marinating as you were growing up in that environment and that's now like beginning to realize itself in your life? Um, Look, I think what marinated at that point in my life was um, an enormous level of love. There was an enormous level of support, enormous levels of dysfunction. Um, Yeah, it was like a whole kit and caboodle. But I think one of the things that drove me to where I am now is there was just enormous voids like, and by voids, they were perception. They were psychological voids, the perception that you know, I didn't have a dad and I didn't have that dad force energy there, that we didn't have a lot of money. And so we couldn't afford a lot of things. And, you know, a lot of those, um, I guess you could say perspectives and subsequent traumas that happened as a result of, you know, the emotions that kids feel when they feel lost and the emotions that kids feel when things, when things happen when they're young, I just developed a lot of wounds and, you know, I'm, uh, and this is, it's interesting because I have this conversation with my mum because whenever I talk about this, my mum gets very sensitive. She's like, you know, you did have a great childhood. So I had a fucking great childhood. I had an incredible childhood. And I also got given some incredible gifts in the form of some amazingly deep and traumatic wounds that provoked or required a level of work and a level of development that, yeah, essentially created the guy that, you, that you're talking to today. Um, and so... I think, you know, if you were to say, what did you marinate in? I think I marinated it in a, in a really big, strong soup of anxiety and suffering and pain that was wrapped up in a lot of love and support and care and nurture. And like, you know, what, because I used to come home crying from school as an example, because I was very different, still am quite different. Um, and I'd be crying and say, mum, the kids are teasing me. And she'd say, well, why are they teasing you? i say, well, because I'm different. She'd go, well, that's because you're special. You know, I remember that. And I'm, to this day, I'm super grateful to my mum because she literally did, you know, she hounded into me that I could do anything. She hounded into me that, you know, despite what my report card said, and my report card said I was a fucking dunce, but she would tell me I was, a, you know, that I was, an, I was a genius. And, you know, there was a part of me that, that didn't believe her, but obviously a part of me that did. And, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful to that experience. Well, clearly she knew something. And um, as within all our kids, right, and it's just a matter of time before it uncovers or rediscovers or discovers um, the genius and what that is. And it's not always in the same vein that of others, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother was trying to grow up and in my shadow. They were thinking he was going to do what I did. It's never going to happen, mm-hmm. right? So so I, I remember reading my first ever self-help book called The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Milman. And it was pivotal, it. pivotal for me. I want to know what 
what was the time? You've been through so much. What was the time where you actually went enough? I'm going to make a change and what did you do? Yeah, look, uh, there's been dozens of those moments. No, actually not, not true. Like major ones has probably been at least a dozen, but the one that springs to mind um, and that you might even remember this, um, I was working um, security in Brisbane at the time and a friend of mine was shot dead on the door of a club, a Lewis Hopawati, Grand Orbit. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, I do. Um, and Lewis was a good friend of mine. And the next week I had a friend of mine that was stabbed on the door and um, that, that didn't end well. And it was literally within that, a two-week time frame that I, uh, and I'd been in the security industry at this point for four years. I was a, I was a very talented in, as a security contract. I was very large. I was, I, I was a very good communicator. I was, I was a very good navigator of fists and, and knees and legs. And, and so as a result, I, I, I was very good in that industry, but after a while, it, it became quite detrimental, became very unhealthy. You know, it's where I was introduced to drugs. Um, just wasn't a healthy scene. A lot of drugs, a lot of violence, a lot of, a lot of just, you know, dysfunction. And so when Lewis got shot and then my friend got stabbed, I literally was walking across Story Bridge and I just got a text message from a mate saying, you know, why don't you come over and we'll get high. And I remember looking at, at my phone and just going, enough. Like I've, I've fucking had enough. And I grabbed my phone, I didn't grab it, I had it in my hand, and I threw it off the story bridge. And I remember that moment of, what the fuck did you do that for? Because <laughs> I, couldn't, I, couldn't I couldn't afford a phone. I was, I was you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Um, but then I went home. Um, I resigned from my, my, my position in the security company. And I basically printed out a, um, um, a CV and I walked through Queen Street Mall handing out my job, uh, my, my CV to, to businesses. And I got, ended up getting a a job at Rebel Sport packing shelves and short version, you know, I was packing shelves and then the manager noticed I was really, I had a really good set of chops. And so then he put me on sales and he noticed I was very good at sales. And so then I was within six weeks, I was department manager in Rebel Sport in Brisbane. And then it just so happened that the owner of Elite Fitness came in to do a price check and I pitched him on a treadmill and he was like, fuck, you're really good at this. How long have you been doing? I was like six weeks. He goes, he offered me a job on the spot managing sports, uh, uh, fucking whatever it was, Garden City Sports. Um, power. Sports power. Um, and then I ended up going and managing uh, you know, fitness equipment stores for a couple of years after that. So, yeah, it was one of those. But again, there was, as I said, there's been at least a dozen, but that was one significant because I knew if I stayed in the security industry, it wasn't going to end well for me. Uh, you know, I'd already gotten myself into trouble a couple of times. Um, and, you know, there's a lifespan on that and, and not just in terms of you know, physical capabilities, but it's, it's just a very hard yak life because I was working some really terrible clubs. Yeah, right. So... I love that you talked about your mom, you know, when she listens to the podcast and how our parents feel. And my mom has made comments as well when I make certain reflections. So mom's out there. It's whatever we make this mean. Okay. So I'm about to ask him a question about addiction, mom. So it's whatever he made this mean, but tell me a little bit about that period of your life where was that another enough moment where you went into rehab? Uh, I actually never went into rehab. Uh, oh. I never, never served a day of rehab in my life. I got myself straight and narrow um, by myself with help. I, I went and saw a, um, a shrink, which, which, which helped talk me through it. Mm -hmm. Self-rehab, yeah. Kerwin. Self-rehab. Perfect. Self-rehab. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm very, very strong-minded. Um, but, yeah, I had another one of those moments because I was, I'd got to the point where I was using amphetamines every single day. Um, and I, I just, again, it was one of those moments where I, I just can't see my – actually, I can tell you what that moment was. I was, um, my grandmother had just passed away. Um, literally, we thought she was going to die for two or three weeks. I'd been sitting by her bedside. I sat by her bedside the night that she left. 
and she died. And then I was driving home and I, I had to pull over because it was like three o'clock in the morning. I was driving back to work. I was working at the uh, Capalapa Tavern, I think it was. And um, I pulled over and I, I took some drugs prior to going back to work. And then when I went back to work, I literally walked in. I just lost my grandmother, who was literally at that point in my life, the most important person in my world. Uh, and I just jacked myself off on drugs, walked into, a, into the bar and a fight broke out. And I just went bananas and I cleaned up the bar. Um, and I just remember that night just going, I just can't do this anymore. And yeah, that was when I got myself clean. And then it was probably another two years before I actually got myself out of the industry. Um, but that night was a pretty, that was a pretty, um, pretty interesting night. I know I'm supposed to let Nan ask the next question, but I'm too curious. So what, so you talked about death a couple of times, people that were really important for you or things that really struck you. What were the drugs about? What were you trying to numb out there? Well, it's a, that's a really super interesting question because um, I'm, I'm diagnosed ADHD dyslexic. Uh, I'd never been medicated. But what was super, super interesting was actually my trainer who introduced me to speed for the very first time. Now, actually, that's not true. I, I tried speed at school. Um, I think it was during a schoolies week or something. And then it was early, just after I'd left school, my trainer, my actual trainer, he actually injected me with speed for the very first time. Um, and what was, and this is where it gets really interesting. It was almost like, because I tried speed, but I tried it with other things at the time. But then when I tried it for the very first time and I was injected, right? So I was straight in there. It was the first time in my life where I actually remember sitting back and going, fuck, is this what it feels like to be normal? Because it was the first time in my life where I didn't feel wound up and anxious and tight. I could focus you know, my mind wasn't jumping around at a million things, a million miles an hour. And you know, that's what happens to the ADHD brain. When you, when you introduce a stimulus to the ADHD brain, it actually calms down. And it is a lot more able to focus, but obviously when you're using chemicals, it has a detrimental effect long-term that is actually negative that goes in the opposite direction. Mm. So for me, the very first time that I used it, it was like, a, you know, I went from someone who I thought literally was living with chronic fatigue. I always was tired, always was foggy in my brain. And so all of a sudden I'm on, I'm sharp, and it just met all of these needs incredibly. Mm. And so as a result, it was very easy for me to get into. I was in the security industry at the time. So you know, six days a week, I was working from 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. And so it just became a natural part of my uh, part of my living. You know, just a little bump here, a little bump there to get through the night. And so I don't think, although on reflection, I'm now more conscious of the wounds that I was perhaps dealing with. At the time, it was really just, it just enabled me to function at a very high Got level. Got it. What I've since discovered, you know, through the work that I've had to do, because, you know, I got rid of the amphetamines, I got myself clean, but I still found, you know, I had other issues that were popping up. And those other issues relate to, you know, everything from um, emotional traumas from childhood to, you know, I've, I've also been diagnosed with PTSD as a result of some of the stuff that I experienced as a contractor. Um, so although at the, at the time I didn't see it that I was medicating myself, I actually looked at it, it was it enables me to function. Since then, I've seen that there's enormous levels of dysfunction that I, I guess you could say that I grew up with that developed a maladaptive brain that ultimately is looking for some level of soothing. Um, but at the time, it was purely about functionality. And so what do you use now to... Meditation. Okay. Yeah, meditation is my, like, it's my everything. And because I wake up naturally most mornings, anywhere between 3.30 and 4.30 every morning, just naturally. And, you know, that's a lot of time to, to spare. And so most days I will start meditating at, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And I can sometimes punch out a two-hour meditation before I get out of bed. You know, and so that for me 
is profound. It's been incredible mm. when it comes to um, you know keeping my my mind really clear, keeping my mind very active. I've also you know I've also dabbled with um, uh, from the ADHD side. I've dabbled with um, uh, microdosing as well. I found that to be also incredibly um, effective, not just from a focus and attention perspective, but also from a performance perspective as well. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite open. I, I do, I do, I'm open to a lot of different types of okay. therapies and, and so, so talk microdosing what? Uh, LSD, psilocybin. Okay. So, and that's, um, how do you monitor that? Is that from a doctor or from a therapist, natural no, therapist? And that's where I'm not sure how much you want to go into this because obviously there's still legal reasons as to why it, it, there's still reasons as to why it is illegal at the moment. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of evidence that is coming through. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the, the amount of evidence that is coming through, not just on LSD and psilocybin, but also on MDMA when it comes to, from a microdosing perspective, the, the amount of data that we're seeing came, coming through from the, for treatment of anxiety or for depression. And this is, in, in most cases, um, treatment-resistant depression, chronic depression, people who have you know, no response to any other form of treatment and they're engaging in some cases in therapeutic or microdose levels of um, psychedelics and they're actually in many cases having their symptoms relieved in, in some instances in a matter of three or you know one to two to three sessions or a couple of months that in some cases they've lived with for you know decades and mm. you know, some great research that's also coming out now in the area of PTSD research is MDMA therapy MDMA talk therapy uh, and the level of um, resolution that they're having with veterans in the United States right now like the the FDA is calling MDMA one of the greatest breakthrough technologies when it comes to the treatment of PTSD that they've ever that they've ever seen. Um, so there's yeah there's a lot of stuff that I've that I've gone and gone to different places around the world where it's considered less less of a, a stigma and and tried because I'm, I'm in the pursuit of growth I'm in the pursuit of healing. So for me I don't have a bias I I have a bias towards data I don't have a bias. So for me although it might be viewed with a level of stigma in some respects once you look at the research and there's plenty out there your perspective starts to shift and you start to look at things a little bit differently. So I won't, I'm sorry, Sarah, I won't go um, into that anymore. There's a lot of research clearly to be done and for, for people to take their own view. But I want to go to meditation. Because yeah, I actually had a question today um, or a lady say to me, I can't meditate, I, I just can't do it. So meditation means a whole spectrum. It's like saying the word health, right? When you say the word meditation. So um, I always, you know, there's the view of sitting on top of the mountain, sitting there with nothing going on. There's a view of meditating when you're in Times Square. So talk me through what meditation looks like to you. Um, so I've, I've done, like I've trained in a few different styles of meditation. Uh, one style of meditation I've trained in is Vipassana, where you take a bow of silence for like the 10 days, you go away, you're not allowed to look at anyone, touch anyone, they segregate the men and the women. You're meditating from 4.30 in the morning until like 9.30 at night with a couple of breaks. Um, and that's hardcore. I call that full contact meditation. I did that like half a dozen times and I swear I'd never do it again because it was just so hard. It was mentally, physically, spiritually enduring. Uh, and the other style that I've trained in is Vedic meditation, which is essentially transcendental med meditation. It's the same, same style. Different, different, same, like both called meditation, different style. Um, Vedic meditation is very mantra-based. So your goal is to focus on a mantra and then over a period of time, that mantra just becomes an echo. And then all of a sudden, there's no mantra. There's just the empty space that you hold in your head. 
that was created from that level of focus. Whereas with Vipassana, it's more of a sensation-based meditation where, you know, you initially start by focusing on the sensation at the top of your crown and then you slowly work over your body in a sweep and mask kind of way where you're literally just observing your body. You're observing the sensation of body and what it feels like. Both are very different. Um, I, I do a combination of both. But to answer the question, because a lot of people say, well, I'm just not, I just can't meditate. And I say, well, why? And they say, well, because every time I sit down, I try, like I'm, I'm thinking about a hundred other things. And it's like, well, that's the point. And they go, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the point is to catch yourself thinking about a hundred things and then go, oh, I'm thinking about a hundred things. And now I come back. That's like you're going to the gym and saying, oh, I can't work out. And saying, why? Well, because every time I lift a weight, it hurts. It's like, it's fucking supposed to hurt. Like it's supposed to hurt because that's where you get the benefit. And the benefit of meditation is you're supposed to get distracted because you're supposed to catch yourself. And the game is catch. It's a game of catch. Can you catch yourself being distracted? And then when you can, can you take a deep enough breath to relax and then go back into the, either the observation of sensation or the, you know, the observation and the focus on the mantra. And so for me, um, you know, I, I've got this saying, and I don't know if it's mine, but it, you, you never get the meditation you want. You always get the meditation that you need. Because you know, sometimes I can sit there, because sometimes meditation for people is literally like closing their eyes for 20 minutes and thinking about their problems. Like that's what they think it is, because it's just that's all that comes up. Whereas one of the things that I've learned is, you know, I, even though I've been meditating now for, you know, almost 20 years, there are times where I can go in and I can do a two-hour meditation where I'm blissful as and I come out feeling like Yogi Bear. But there are also some meditations where I go in there and it's literally like, literally like combing my hair with a cheese grater for half an hour. And it's like, and it's like, well, isn't it supposed to get easier? Like, let me ask you the question that you're an athlete, Sarah, you're an athlete. You know, you guys are both fit. You're both trained. But did you ever train when you're at your peak so hard that you're like, man, I'm fucked. Like I've really just, that's the, that's the whole point. Right. And so people think just because you meditate all the time, it gets easier you get a high level of fitness, you get a level of conditioning, but you still have hard sessions. And, you know, that's like anything. Why do people not go to the gym? Because it's difficult. And so I think it's less about are there people that can and can't meditate and more about people realizing that there's a level of self-discipline, self-leadership and self-management required if you're going to be successful at it. And that's where for me, I'm always, I'm always into not just showing the mechanics, but also building a psychology behind the correct. Cause if there's no motivation, it doesn't matter what tools you give someone, they're not going to do anything. And so for me, whenever I'm trying to, I guess you could say induct someone to into meditation, I very rarely talk about the practice and I often will always talk about the performance I talk about the effects that it has at a neurological level, at a biochemical level, at a neuropharmological, like at a parenting level, at a business level, at a flow level, at a performance sport. And when I start sharing all these things, people say, well, that, because if I can find out what's important to someone and I can attach enough reasons why meditating, well, you know, parenting is really important for you. And if I can tell you 50 reasons why meditating will make you a better parent, then chances are you're going to be more motivated to want to meditate. But most parents aren't sitting there going, well, let me think about the 50 reasons why. They're just going, fuck, this is hard. I don't like it. Absolutely. It's distracting. Yeah, great. And I love that people, they go for the bliss. It's almost been sold, like yeah. peace and bliss. And it's actually hell. Yeah. Um, but what you're doing really well is, is getting them to want to go through hell. I love yeah. the word practice and you introducing athletes into that because it's that sense of it is a practice so that that moment, you know, when we have a four-year-old and there's a tantrum going on at the nth degree and maybe there's a lot of people around i remember being in switzerland we were in this like bakery shop right at the beginning switzerland it's like all the kids i better be careful of what i'm about to say they're very proper 
yes, I was going to say it in a different way. We're going to say they've been given something. Um, but yeah, it's very docile. Anyway, Jordan pulls off this glass jar and next thing you know, break everywhere. And, and it was really intense. And meditation allowed me to get that that moment, I made it about something that was totally in my world. It wasn't about her. And that had a totally different reaction in terms of what was going on in her world. And meditation just allowed me to see that I was shifting my parenting because people were around. I was shifting. For me, it was more important that I make it okay with the lady from the Swiss shop than being with Jordan. And Nat just totally got, hey, this is about what's going on for our daughter right now. And so meditation to me is not like, didn't solve that issue. It just allowed me to catch. Makes it, and this makes it easier. It allows you to catch. And, you know, and again, I think most people are focused on meditation as the answer. It's not. Most people focus on gym as the answer. It's not. Or health or nutrition is the answer. It's not. It's like, how do you make this a way of life? And it's not even meditation becoming a way of life. It's like, what is the benefit of going to the gym? What is the benefit of eating well? You know, what are the benefits of, you know, breathing deeply? You feel healthier. And so the benefits of these things is health. And when you look at what meditation gives you, like meditation is, is to me is a, is, a, is, a, is a barbell that you pick up that when you exercise with it, it builds consciousness. And so for me, meditation is the practice that builds the muscle that we're ultimately looking for that creates the change and the ability to catch, mm. which is once we become conscious, everything changes. And I literally just had a coaching session just before, you, before, before this conversation when I was having a chat with a guy. And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about was, you know, when you're running autonomously, because things go wrong and it's very hard for most people to identify, they go, I just don't know why I keep doing this. And so people go, well, I'll read a book, but I keep making the same mistakes. I'll go to a seminar, but I keep making the same mistakes. We will keep repeating the mistakes that we make until we become aware of why we make them. And most people don't realize that everything that we do is not hidden from us. It's sitting just below the surface of noise that if we quiet our minds and listen, we can actually hear the suggestions and the commands that are playing out in our brain that are literally programming the behavior that we're seeing demonstrate and play out that we're going consciously, why the fuck am I doing that? But when we quiet and then we listen, we go, fuck, that's why I'm doing that. What am I saying? Oh, fuck, how long have I been saying that for? And most people have been listening to this little voice for so long that they think it's themselves and it's not. It's a third party entity that's not even fucking paying rent. You know, it's this little, this little uh, third party that we've trained in many respects to protect ourselves, but in most, thing, in most cases to protect ourselves from things that in most cases don't even exist, threats that don't even exist, and in most cases threats that aren't even real. Mm. That, Nat, weren't you just saying that the other day about that, that precursor? I think you had another word for it, but like recognizing something coming versus reflecting after the fact, you know, like being out in front of it. Um, and I think that's what you're talking about. And I think I just have this gnawing question as you speak about your ability to be vulnerable, vulnerable and honest as a means of being a contribution to other people, like teaching and training. How have you done that over the past 20 years? Because I feel pre Brene Brown, yeah. this wasn't done. So no. what gives you that? What, how do you give yourself that permission to be fully yourself and trust that, Hey, that's the way it's going to work. Look, I think there's a few factors. I think number one, um, I'm, I'm on a spectrum. I'm, not, I'm probably on a couple of spectrums, let's be honest. Uh, and so I, I've always been a classic oversharer. <laughs> like I'm just, I've got no filter. And mm -hmm. I don't know if, how, how much Nat remembers of conversations we've had. Like I literally, 
I've just always been one of those first people. If you ask me something, I just tell you. Like I just, I'm not, I'm terrible at holding secrets. Um, and I just, there's, there's kind of two things. I prefer to have all my shit out there so no one can use it against me. And secondly, I have seen how powerful it is when I share my problems, not from a place of being a victim, but from a place of being, for no better word, a victor by virtue of the journey that it's put me through. And I just observed like, fuck, like when I work with people one-on-one, if I sit there and say, and they tell me I've got this problem and I say, well, here's how you fix it. I notice that there's a certain response, but if someone tells me this problem and then I share me going through the very same or a time where I went through the very same thing and I show the emotions that I went through, then I tell them and I give them some advice. The response is like, it's fucking poles apart. Like the difference between someone listening and someone hearing, because all of a sudden you have relativity, you have relationship, you have a level of connection and affiliation that you didn't have before. And so we've got to understand when we desire influence, when our desire is to have influence, one of the most important factors that allows us to influence is connectivity. It's that relativity. It's that trust because it's that connectivity and that, that relationship that ultimately builds trust. And so for me, it's not, well, how is it you're so vulnerable? It's just like, why is trust so important to you? And so for me, trust is like my number one. It's my number one wound and it's my number one value. So it's the, it is, it's the number one thing that will, in most cases will most offend me, but it's the number one thing that will most affect me as well. And so for me, I just love to be trusted and I love to trust others, although I'm, not, I'm, I'm getting better at it. It's something that, I, that I'm not great at. But the way that I do that is by playing that game. This is me, show me you. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. I, and I, and this you is your space, Matt. You better take it or you won't yeah, get another no, one. No, I've got so many questions brewing. I mean, we are right now really close to uh, the next Olympics and there has been a shift since Brene Brown and this whole vulnerability conversation and be yourself, which I've been myself forever. I, yeah. I was different at school. I had no friends. People, I'd go home and say, and I didn't care though. I actually liked being by myself. I didn't need friends. I was good at sport and good at school. And I just focused on winning at that. Right. So, but this is what's happened in my world that, and take this with a grain of salt. They actually don't want the gold medalist anymore. They want the ones that have tripped and fall to talk. They yeah. want the, they want the failures to be talking because that's what's most relatable to the world. And I love Alan DeGeneres did our relatable piece stand up on how to, you know, that nobody thinks they're relatable to Alan, Alan DeGeneres. And she talks about toilet paper and showering and all the same. We all do the same shit, right? Um, but my point and my question is we shifted at the Australian Olympic Committee to go from targets on gold medals winning to no medal performance target. That because of this, oh, there's too much pressure. We don't want this. Um, you know, we want you just to do your best. Right, so someone's driving that ma- ma- mental just struggling. saying this. Yeah. I'm struggling, right? And we see it at schools, participation medals, and there it's okay, you don't have to win, and which which is okay, but when you're at the Olympics and you sign up to be an Olympian, that's what you're signing up for. So I'm confused. Can you shed some light on this, how you can use vulnerability and these failure discussions to drive performance? Oh, my fucking favourite subject. Um, when we when we look at vulnerability and performance, these two are intrinsically linked. Uh, and I've seen this in my own business because I've got 62 Olympic athletes that I'm working with right now in my office, right? 
62? Yeah, 62 team, right? There's 62 people in the team here. Um, So, and growing rapidly. But one of the things that I do is we have a bring your shit to work policy, not a leave your shit at home policy. Mm. Um, Because one of the things that I've identified is I can give a person the best fucking tools, the best processes, the best connections, the best everything. But if they've got shit going on in their head, that's going to take them off their A game. That's going to prevent them from being at their peak when it's required and being on point. And so, like, I was only having this, again, in this conversation just before you guys, I literally spend, of the 50 to 60 hours that I'm here a week, easily 35 hours a week coaching. But it's not traditional, okay, sit down, what's going on? It's conversational coaching. It's, you know, got a minute coaching. It's, you know, literally discussions and debriefs that turn into three-minute coaching sessions. And one of the things that I do consistently is I'm constantly looking for people's issues that are affecting performance and then I'm working through it with them. So if they've got issues with their mum, right, what's going on? Let's talk about it. How can I be of help? And so a lot of our meetings end up being, because we have a very a very rhythmic meeting kind of um, culture where it's not a meeting culture, but we have a high performance meeting rhythmic process. But a lot of our meetings will end up being, we, have a, we literally have a section in all of our meetings for what's called um, what my, my gut says and what's left unsaid. And those always, always, always end up being group therapy sessions whereby individuals, either individually or unanimously, one person will go, I've got this going on for me at home right now. You know, this is really taking me off my game. They'll have a big release, a big cry. And the beautiful thing, everyone just sits down and holds space. Let's them cry. Let's them do it in a really safe place where they can, and people often say, I've never cried like this at work before, you know? And so, well, now you're safe, you can. You can actually be safe to cry. You can be safe to express emotion. And then the other person on the other side of the table will go, you know what, that actually happened to me 18 months ago, so I can really understand what you're going through. And here's some of the things that I did. And so we have a very vulnerable work environment that ultimately allows people to get the shit off their chest real fast. Mm-hmm. And so that, and that to me, fucking like honestly, and I'm not sure what they do with the Olympic committee, but you know, the way that I get the best out of my team is I find the, the people that have been trying, like I find the guys that have been sprinting since they're three, right? I find the people that have been, you know, throwing, 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 um, um, this, whatever. So I find athletes who are already good athletes and then I bring them in and I work on this. So I don't, I'm not out there trying to train the, the next greatest Olympian. I'm out there looking for Olympians who have Olympic potential, but they've just got something up here that's standing in their way. And that to me, in most cases, is tackled by the ability to create, because again, you can't produce vulnerability without a context. And to me, the context that's required for vulnerability to naturally occur is safety. And so for me, if you're, one, if you're trying to work with someone to introduce vulnerability, then there's got to be a level of safety. For me personally, I've had to do a lot of work to get to the point where I can literally bear my soul in front of whether it be, you know, 1,000 or 12,000 people and talk about my stuff because I've, I've propagated a level of safety within myself that I don't need an external situation to feel safe. And so I can be vulnerable 24-7 depending on where people are in their journey, their vulnerability will be context-based. Then that context will be driven by safety. That safety will, safety will be fundamentally be, be driven and founded in the level of trust with the individuals in that team. That level of trust will ultimately be determined by the level of connectivity and relativity, which comes down to relatability and things we have in common and levels of connection, which ultimately is all leadership. And so when we look at coaching, coaching and leadership, to me, they're, 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 both in, they're both interchangeable aspects of performance when it comes to being a third party that can provide a reflection to the individual to help move stuff out of their way so that they can perform at a high level. Mm. Wow. Uh, 
they're just so much there. I mean, we could talk for weeks about that. And the vulnerable, I agree, it's a healing space. It's a, you know, it's like a cleansing space. And Kerry and I did that a lot because we there was a lot of friction. So when there's a lot of friction, you've got to be able to cleanse and and, um, and get ready to move on. The the other piece, I guess, is around goal setting and targets and yeah. the, the way that they've shifted the target from the actual um, goal of going to an Olympics. Well, this, right? this, this to me, this, this fundamentally focuses on, on a different aspect of performance, which is motivation. Because vulnerability will help clear the decks in order to perform, but if there's not an intrinsic driver, there will be no motivation for, for performance. And when we look at motivation, what motivation is, the root word of motivation is motive, and a motive is a reason to do. And when we look at you know, the, the role of motivation, especially in a performance environment, whether that be as an athlete um, or, or in the corporate world, we've got to understand that there, is, there are essentially three types of motivational frameworks that we can play with. You've got basic motivational framework 1.0, which is the motivation to survive. And as long as that need is met, perform, the, the, the avenues for performance are open. But what you've probably, you've seen this probably in your own careers as well, Sarah, and that, where you've got these incredible Olympic athletes, but they, they, they haven't got sponsorships, so they can't pay their bills. And so as a result, they can't cover their basic needs. And as a result, they don't perform at their best because they're constantly thinking how fucking shit their finances are, right? And so motivation factor number one, 1 1.0, is are our basic needs covered? And if they are, that then frees us up to then really lean into the other aspects of what is performance psychology and what is drive and motivation, which is looking at the other two factors of motivation. 2.0 motivation is carrot and stick. Now, carrot and stick motivation was a psychological concept that was developed in the industrial age when we had factory workers where we were trying to look for what is the quickest and easiest and efficient, most efficient way that we can affect productivity and performance. Well, if we threaten them with their job, wow, we, we get an uplift in performance. If we promise them something, we get an uplift in performance. Well, if we use both simultaneously, wow, we seem to get these peaks in performance. But what we've got to understand, motivation, just like humans, we're evolutionary. And what the way we were motivated in the 1900s, the way an individual was motivated in the 1900s is not the same way that an individual is motivated in 2000. And the number one reason being is we, we evolve. We are literally evolving at a, at a software and a hardware level. So we're running new programs and new systems now. And so carrot and stick, although it worked really well in the industrial age, which is very much, okay, you guys, we've got to get fucking 21 gold in the next Olympics. And if you don't, we're going to fucking cut funding. We're not going to do trips away anymore. You know, we're going to make it a lot tougher for you. Okay, which is, oh, but what, what we discovered after the 1920s is that worked really well and all of a sudden it didn't anymore. And so what we discovered was, and Carol Dweck, Chick Me Sent Me High, Dan Pink, you know, all of the greats when it comes to, the, to um, developmental psychology started to do all of these explorations and go, well, what, is, what is a real consistent form of drive? How do we tap into that consistency? Because what they found with the carrot and stick, although it's still very much fundamental a part of our motivation strategy today, it causes all this inconsistent performance. You see inconsistent performance at, an, at, a, at a professional athletics level. You see inconsistent performance at a professional sales level. You see inconsistent performance at any area where you're using an external factor to prod you to do something. Because it's not, you're not doing it for something that's within you. You're doing something that is on the outside. And so there's a disconnect. It's disassociated motivation. And so it's not within. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not drive. Whereas when we look at motivation 3.0, motivation 3.0 is intrinsic motivation, where we start understanding what the intrinsic factors are. And this is super interesting when you start looking at all the research that's been done, uh, especially by Carol Dweck 
Tipney sent me high. And there was one, in, one situation where they went into a um, 200 schools, I think it was in the, in the United States, and they went into the kindergartens and into all of the kindergartens and they said, okay, we're gonna start offering a participation award for art because they discovered that you know that was the one that, where there was the most contention and they put the kids into three categories. Category one were the kids that love doing art and would do it at the drop of the hat. You just give them a pencil, they're fucking drawing something. Category number two are the kids that like doing art, they didn't love it, but if you gave them the opportunity and you asked them nicely, they would do the art. Wasn't their biggest driver, but they do it. Category number three, these are the guys that just hated doing art, didn't like doing it and always end up just becoming a distraction to the class because they would become disorderly. And so they introduced these participation awards. Oh, if you do, if you, you know, engage in the art class, we'll give you a fancy certificate with a gold star. First three weeks, guess what happened? Performance raised. Kids who love to do art all the time, guess what? They kept doing art. Why? They fucking love art. Second category kids, the kids that like doing art when you ask them, guess what they did? They kept doing art. Why? Because they just like doing art anyway. It wasn't their passion, but they would do it. And the third group of kids, they started doing art. The ones that had never done it before, they started doing art. But then after the third week, this is where it got interesting. The kids that loved doing art and would do it at the drop of the hat, they started falling out as much as 35, 40% lost interest in engaging in the art class. The second category of kids who were the ones who would do it, they lost even more interest. So there was even less participation than before the baseline. And the third category, they just went back, they fucking didn't like that. And so what they discovered was, is if you have someone that is intrinsically driven, and then all of a sudden you start putting extrinsic factors in front of them, you can actually derail their motor, internal motivational drive. So imagine you've got this kid who just loves doing, loves playing fucking volleyball, played volleyball their whole life, they're fucking killing it, they love the sand, they love the beach, they just love balls, they love the competition, and then they go to the Australian Institute of Support, and all of a sudden, it's not about, you gotta fucking win goals, it's about goals now, it's no longer about you having fun, you can have fun as long as you're winning fucking, all of a sudden they're like, fuck, hang on, it's now, there's now a different goal. And so as what can, and I'm not saying this is what happened in the Australian Institute of Sport, I'm just saying, you know, whether it's sporting team, you know, uh, you know, football, soccer, swimming, or even sales, you know, once we start having other people put those extrinsic factors in front of us, it literally derails our own internal self-drive. And so when you look at it from a commercial perspective, which to me, the overlay between athletics and commercial is exactly the same. What I'm looking for when I hire, I'm looking for an athlete, no kidding, literally, I'm looking for an athlete that has got a proven history in performance in the area of self-management and self-leadership. Because by virtue of looking at them historically, okay, have they, and this was highlighted in 1992, there was a study done by Forbes magazine where they went through the Fortune 500 companies at the time, the top 5% of the top 5% of the Fortune 500 CEOs, and they put them through like 80 different questions to identify what were the key characteristics that these top 5% of the top 5% all shared. And what they all shared was they all had a background in either three things, military, martial arts, or high-level competitive sports. And so what they identified from those three things is all of those, all of those three areas require high levels of self-discipline, high levels of self-leadership, and high levels of self-management. And so what I look for now when it comes to good talent is I'm looking for someone who has already developed that way, not for someone who I have to develop into that. Because now we're talking fucking, we're now talking uh, early, adole- uh, uh, you know, we're talking early develop- developmental training now. I, I didn't get you when, I, when you were three, I got you when you were 30. So it's like, you know, like what I'm doing with my son now, I've got him at the perfect age where I'm doing all of the things to build very strong intrinsic drivers so that he is naturally wanting, motivated to do the things that, you know, he wants to do versus saying, you know, if you clean up your room, I'll give you a lolly. You know, it's, it's like, how, how do you link it into something greater? And so that for me, 
when so what do you do instead? What do you do? What's the intrinsic? How are you building intrinsic for that? So it's not a lolly. Okay. I link it to values. And so when Noah was about four, was sitting at the table, he literally says, to, says out of nowhere, Daddy, talk to me about leaders. What are they? Now, this is out of the blue. You've got to ask. He's clearly hearing this shit somewhere. And so I was like, fuck, well, leaders are this, leaders are that. And then the next night we sit down and then he goes, daddy, can we talk about leaders again? And I was like, I need a script. Because if he keeps asking this, I don't want to tell him different things every time. I want to drill something that is consistent, that sticks. And so I got our values from the wall printed out. And so every night he goes, daddy, let's talk about leadership. What is leadership? And I say, well, leaders say thank you. Leaders are family. Leaders are conscious and humble. Leaders practice conscious and humble leadership that inspire trust. And I'd read through the values and I'd get him repeating it. And so now he knows all of our company values. He's five and a half. And so when we have issues, it's so funny, he'll be going, something will happen and he'll do something or he'll observe someone doing something and he go, dad, was he a good leader when he did that? Or dad, am I a good leader because I did that? Or dad, is that what a good leader would do? And so now in his head, he's like, my dad's a leader. I want to be fucking just like my dad. My dad's a leader. So, and so when I say, can you clean up your room, please? No. I say, what would a leader do, son? Mm. Now that doesn't mean he cleans. I'll be honest with you, that only works fifty percent of the time. Yeah. With the other fifty percent of the time, I see him thinking. He's like, well, "I know you're right, but I'm just going to be defiant and let kids be defiant. You know, let them let them express that early because if they express it when it's later, they're bigger and they're more boisterous." So. Well, clearly, your mother, you, with her hypnosis of you being the special one, and and what that's led to your career, and then Noah being a leader, whoa, can't wait to see what happens. I literally sit there and I, I'm like a computer, constantly banging on his keyboard. I am surgical with the language that I use with my son, surgical. Like I am literally implanting, this kid is either gonna be like, <laughs> do something that is revolutionary at a global level or he's, he's gonna become like an evil fucking, like an oh, no, I'm kidding. Like he's literally, <laughs> he's either gonna be the happiest person that ever lived that no one ever heard about or he's, he's going to end up doing something great. Yeah. I'm programming. I'm literally choosing like what would be a great trait for you to have? What would be a great quality for you to have? And it, again, it's not based on, well, am I, because there's a level of, well, hang on, are you choosing his faith here? And so, well, no, I'm naturally looking at the, the, the things that we all need, which is encouragement, love, support, safety, trust, you know, vulnerability. Oh man, like it's a perfect example. I constantly show my son that it's okay to cry because I will, so I, I'm a very, I'm a very, I live, I live at the surface. And so I'm, it's not unusual for me to cry in our house. And daddy will, and Noah will say to me, are these happy tears or sad tears? <laughs> he knows the question. I said, son, they're, they're happy tears. And I'm just so grateful right now. Son, they're sad tears. And I'm really glad that you asked the question. And so he's seeing me express emotion in a healthy way and not try and cover it and be you know, ashamed or anything else. And so that for me is just, again, and that we're getting into the whole parenting side now, which is, well, I just want to demystify the word hypnosis because when I took my hypnosis stuff, I had this idea of what it was. And I really get that we're always hypnotizing people in some way. And what I got from you is it's just deliberate. And being surgical to me means being deliberate because something's going in. You know, it's, there's always, you know, like even well, silence. The question is, something. how conscious are you of that suggestion? That's right. And, you know, I'd go one step further and I'd say, do you hypnotize a computer or do you program it? Because, again, I've got no issue with the language of hypnosis, but when we look at fundamentally what we're doing, we're not, we are hypnotizing our brain in a way, 
But when you look at what computer science has been trying to do for the last 70, 80 years, they've been trying to replicate the human brain. Our brain is a biological soft piece of, it is a, it's a, we've got the hardware, but the software of that gray matter literally behaves just like a programming environment, literally. Which means if you constantly enter a command over an extended period of time, you will produce very predictable responses in the algorithm. And so right now, when we start to understand, we are nothing more than an expression of thousands of algorithms that have been programmed into us through observation of our environment and the lessons and the leadership, the lessons that we've been taught, told and observed. And we just run different algorithms depending on the environment that we're in. We are just a biological computer and we, are, we have the capacity to program ourselves just like you do a computer. But then, you know, understanding yep. the same concept, we also are susceptible to viruses, just as a computer <laughs> is. We are, because when you think of what a virus is, it's malicious code. What is malicious code? It has a malintent, has a malicious intent. And when you think about negative self-talk, what is it? It's malicious self-talk, it's malicious intent, it's malicious code. So it's, it's the same thing, whereas consciousness is the antivirus for our software and our brains, because we must become conscious that that little negative program is running in order for us to isolate it, just like what an antivirus does. An antivirus scans all the files, finds the, 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 the virus and then isolates it before it removes it and then it patches the code. And that's what our goal is, is to become conscious enough to find our viruses. So we become our own antivirus so we can isolate it, remove it from the talk track, remove it from the suggestion track and then put in a different track, put in a different suggestion. And now the computer's back to operating. Because again, I ask people this all the time. When was the last time you crashed? When was the last time you forgot something that you really was really important? When was the last time that you know you had a pop up in your head and you thought about something you shouldn't have at a really inappropriate time? And I go through every single symptom of a virus in the computer, and every single symptom of a virus in the computer, every human being has had, and all of it can be traced back to a bad program. Mm. Whoa! Or, yeah, and even I would say um, a survival moment. You know, like something happened. And in that moment, you made it mean something and you lock something in. And it's like yep. a response that keeps triggering out of you, you know, at unexpected times. And it's, I think sometimes it was there for a purpose, but it's outdated now. You know, yep. it's, you don't need to survive that anymore. Correct. And so, okay. So, so about a million things are happening. And so a mutual friend, a person that we are both in love with, you know, psychiatrist, Vanessa LaPointe, okay. she, she talks a lot about, you know, child programming and what goes on at an early age. And I just really got this huge connection between that asking about athletes and motivation in that my experience of, of being an athlete was the, the beginning of my career was about proving. It was like this sense of proving all the time and working with a lot of national teams on their mental game. I just heard that from the athlete all the time. There was this sense of like the, the motivation was really a stick in a way, you know, not so much a carrot, not a toward motivator. It was really something that they were trying to get away from, you know? And, and I think, you know, this, these opportunities that we have as parents to not use the stick against our kids mm. early on. And I know in your, your amazing podcast with her, you guys went there, you know, she really, she said it, you know, she talked about that experience of kids needing connection oh. and how we punish them. We know they need it to survive and then we remove it's it. It's the most important thing that they require and it's the very thing that we go to to threaten them the moment they don't comply. Didn't she nail that? I, like, I was like, whoa. I was like there thinking, oh, thank God we didn't do timeouts. <laughs> this is what I was thinking when she was speaking. But then on another case, when Nat was just um, 
talking about the lolly, I thought, isn't it funny how easy it is to get goaded into manipulative behavior, you know, taking something we know they love and then hanging it out there mm. and going, here we go. And to me, this is the same structure, Nat, as the athlete. It's almost like, let us carry this um, destruction into another phase. And what we're currently getting with a lot of athletes is a sense of um, loss of identity, mm. you know, when, when everything is over, who am I? And I guess the question that I kind of wanted to kind of wrap things up with actually for you, with you, Kerwin, was about the finite game and the infinite game. Simon Sinek is really into this at the moment. And I would like you, if you can, how do you see these things working together? Because he's kind of separating them and saying a bit of like finite, no good, infinite, it's, that's all there is. And I believe that, that maybe they can work together. What do you think? Give me a context just so I can answer that yeah. properly. So finite game, Nat brought it up a little bit about goals. Yeah. This is, this is what I want to do. This is like in a sales, like maybe quotas. Yep. You know, the sense that there's a finite thing and then I'm going to arrive there. And when I arrive there, I'm going to feel good. I'm going to be successful. Um, whereas, and again. Which often leads to yeah. athletes coming out the other end with gold medals or not and going, well, who the fuck am I now that I'm not an athlete? And I would say salespeople going, I hate <laughs> this. And then they think, oh, it's because I work for somebody else. Now I'm going to work for myself. And then it happens again because it's the same game being played over and over and over again. Whereas the infinite game is this idea that, hey, it's never, it's never ending. Like yeah. th we're, there's nowhere we're meant to get. To, to me, I think those worlds live simultaneously together, synchronously at, at both times. Um, and the way that that plays out in my world is I went from a total fucking woo-woo, etheric, no planning, just go where the world and the wind takes me to then going to the complete opposite end of the spectrum to having massive structure, massive order, massive discipline, goals, plans and everything else to now I sit in the middle of this creative flux of structure and organization. Um, and I, and I, I really mean it, like I live in a creative flux whereby I, I live in a world that is just constantly moving and, and, and shaping and adapting, but it is doing that on top of a framework that has a lot, of, a lot of structure and discipline and processes in place. So to give you stronger context, to me, I live in a world of infinite possibility but the way that I achieve my infinite possibilities is through finite goals, finite outcomes, finite tasks. My attachment though is not in the task or the goal or the priority. My attachment though is in the mission. So when you look at it from a performance perspective, so one of the things that I do with a business when I'm working with a performance is I create a, um, a, hierarchy, a, 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 hierarchy, a hierarchy of potential and it starts with purpose. So up, up the top, the very first thing that I get someone connected with is the infinite. Why are you here? Why do you exist? It goes well beyond your, your meat sack, you know, and that really looks at people's, what do you love? What do you love to express? What's historically what you've expressed? We've had the most fun. And so we get clear on, okay, this is what drives you. And we connect people with that. And once people get connected with their purpose, that to me is like the, the, the first thing that needs to shift when it comes to instilling and activating intrinsic motivation, right? And again, this is going to come down to the identity piece at the bottom as well. The second thing we need to do then is we need to get clear on, okay, well, I'm an infinite being. I can do anything that I want. What do I want to do? And that to me is then what I'd refer to as the mission. And the mission is, okay, I could do something great in 12 months, but I could do something fucking groundbreaking in 10 years. 
okay? You're not going to train for 12 months and become an Olympic athlete, but if you dedicate 10 years of your life to it, there's every possibility you could get yourself, you know, um, a seat on the bus. And so our purpose is fundamentally why we exist. Our mission is what is going to be our, what is the expression of that infinite potential? You know, what is the finite view of how that potential could be, not has to be, could be expressed. And then from that mission, we then reverse engineer, okay, what would be all the priorities that need to be completed in the next 12 months in order for us to get one step closer to that mission? And then what are the tasks that I need to, oh, sorry, then let's prioritize those priorities in the next 12 months to the next three months. And let's only choose a couple. So you might have 50 priorities that you've got to do in the next 12 months to get one step closer, but let's choose three. But we're going to focus and double down on those three for the next three months. And then from those three priorities for the next three months, every week we're going to break those down into little bite-sized goals. And every week you're going to be working on those five goals. And every day you're going to be working on aspects of those goals and you're going to break down those five goals into three little tasks. And so every day you're going to be engaging in a task that is connected to a goal, that is connected to a top, which is connected to a priority, which is connected to your mission, which is connected to your purpose. You see, one of the reasons that people fail to perform is there's no alignment between the action that I'm doing now and why. Why am I doing gold medal? It's got nothing to do with the gold medal and everything to do with purpose. And when we can create that high level of alignment, people stop looking at their tasks in isolation and they start seeing the bigger picture. And they start seeing that the task is actually connected to something strategic. The, staff is, the, the task is connected to something of, of, of meaning. And once I complete my current mission, yes, I might complete my current mission. I've won gold medal. I've now retired. I've sold my business for $100 million. I've now retired. What have I got? What have I got? Well, I've still got my purpose, haven't I? I still know why I exist. Yeah. You see, one of the reasons I believe that people enter identity crises is and they spend too much of their life pretending to be something that they're not, and so they forget. And then all of a sudden they lose the anchor of their identity, which they have hung everything on. And all of a sudden there's nothing there. And they've gone, fuck, I've been so busy pretending to be this. Now this is gone. I'm not sure who I am. But if you stay connected and if you can get the sooner that we can get connected to a purpose beyond a gold medal, beyond a dollar tab that is infinite, that is soul level, that is literally can only be defined you know, through the expression of energy, not even words then everything starts to shift and everything just becomes an expression of that. Because everything I do is an expression of my purpose. Every single thing I do, sending an invoice is an expression of my purpose. You know, mm -hmm. coaching someone is an expression of my purpose. Firing someone is an expression of my purpose. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden now, there's, not a, there's no longer the level of bias. And well, I, I don't want to do that because that's not like, so well, how is it connected? Everything is connected if it's some form of an expression, if it's coming from you and that's your purpose, that's an expression of your purpose. It's just your ability to see it and rationalise it. As we close out, I would love, there's so much there on high performance with our athletes and transitioning of athletes, and I would love to um, spend some time with you on that next year. Um, yeah. for the 2020 vision. In the 2020 is a great time. We've known each other now almost 20, more than 20 years. The next 20 years for you and your 2020 vision slash mission purpose, Kerwin Ray, is what? Colonize the world. So I'm, I'm all in communities right now. Like I'm mad on communities and building communities. And my current mission that ends in 2020 uh, was Mission to Mars. And the goal was to, to build the framework for our communities, which we've done very, very successfully. And now we need to colonise. So we want to take, you know, we want to colonise all so around the world. But, you know, a bigger part of my vision, which I've only really started to be more comfortable sharing right now is, like I honestly see the next evolution of humanity is going to be moving towards communities again, like moving towards literal 
little towns, little communities, little little subsets. Um, and yeah, I do have this grand vision of you know imagine a highly conscious community that was governed by values that people were naturally aligned with that they didn't have to be told how to behave and you know and again i know it sounds like some form of utopia but i've managed to create that so far commercially very successfully you know with a high-end client group of around 450 500 clients and i now look at this and go man there's already a small town right there like imagine what we could do if we could literally start having a focus on redefining or reinventing what civilization looks like and I mean that. What does if we were to reinvent what civilization? Because you know, civilization is the is the construct of humanity that we used to be civilized between one another and have orderly function, right? And I think a lot of civilization has been lost in the desire for consumption. And if we can kind of go back to our grassroots of sustainability, um, I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of value in getting people back to what's really important, which is connection, community, like you know, the tribe. I love that dream. I'm a utopian. Boom. That's why Sarah, we're together. Kerwin, a very, I think um, Kerwin is the male version of Sarah. You both have so much in common. That's why I love you both, Kerwin. Thank you so much for your time. I will let wow. Sarah have the last word. You can't word, marry him. Which is very difficult to give her the last word. All I'm going to say is for anything Kerwin Ray, of which there's a plethora of places to start, the Unstoppable Podcast, the nail it, and scale, nail it and Scale It. There's so many things you can do with this amazing, epic, unstoppable human. Go to kerwinray.com and uh, go to one of his events in 2020. Sarah, last word to you. Just wanted to say that your, your why, your mission, your, your real purpose, I really get that the little kid in all of us, we all had it. It was so easy. You watch our, the kids play and, and they are creating that community that you're talking about that just works. Yeah. And, and so I just, for all of us getting on board the utopian bus, we always knew, we always knew it was possible. So thank you for someone like you who has the courage no, to um, define it as a, an, a bigger person. And it's, it's an honor to be on the podcast and I really enjoy speaking with you ladies and get me into the Olympic athletes. Let me help them. Yes, Kerwin. I got I'll that. Hold you I to heard that. that. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll hold you to that. Love no. your work, my friend. Done. And um, thanks for everything you are doing on this planet from Noah all the way through to the utopic community vision that will, I guarantee, with you at the helm, it's going to happen. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.